Hello, I'm Dr. Louise Newson, and welcome to my podcast. I'm a GP and menopause specialist, and I run the Newson Health Menopause and Wellbeing Centre here in Stratford-upon-Avon. I'm also the founder of the Menopause Charity and the Menopause Support App called Balance. On the podcast, I will be joined each week by an exciting guest to help provide evidence-based information and advice about both the perimenopause and the menopause. On this week's podcast, I've got with me a nurse who I've known for quite a few years now and ensnared her into the Newson Health community <laughs> more recently. So it's someone called Sue Thomas, who I met quite a few years ago, Sue, didn't I? Was it, I think, did you come and set my clinic first or was it a conference that you came to? Yeah, no, I, I sat in on your clinic. You very kindly let me do that because, of course, when I'd been through the British Menopause Society course for nurses, there's no mentorship, unfortunately, mm. nationally. There's shortage so in order to get the experience the clinical experience I asked could I come and sit and you very kindly let me and I sat in with Rebecca actually and I think that was after we'd done a little presentation on group consultations many moons ago yeah that's exactly right and I think like me you were sort of quite standard with the stories and the the need for women and I know when I did some theory training many years ago I read lots of articles went on a few courses but I just thought hmm when a patient's sitting in front of me I don't quite know what to say or what to do and you want to see people do it in action and it's like anything in medicine isn't it you learn on the job you obviously need to have theory of course you do whether you're a doctor nurse pharmacist or whatever but you actually you learn so much more from your patients and the way that we deal with patients obviously every consultation is different isn't it and every menopause and perimenopausal story is different so how we approach is quite different as well and I think you know there's a lot of people who come and sit in my clinic or our clinic and really quite surprised actually with the amount of suffering often that women have which I don't really think there are many other areas of medicine where people are left to suffer and be ignored for so long I don't know what you think well I remember the first patient actually that I saw with Rebecca and I've been nursing a long time and I've seen a lot in my time and I always remember that patient she'll stay with me actually and it had been a 15 year journey for this lady to finally mm-hmm. get the care that she needed and I think at that point she'd actually given up a job and she was quite high up she's quite senior but she'd been to see, I think, several doctors along the way and just was struggling really badly. And, of course, her work mustn't have been so supportive. And she ended up leaving her job mm. and coming into clinic. And I heard a story and I sat at the back of the room listening to this and I just couldn't believe it. And I remember Rebecca saying, Sue, there are a lot of ladies that you're going to be dealing with as a nurse in the menopause clinics that have similar stories. Mm. I'll never forget that lady, you know, Mm. and I've seen and heard, you know, quite a few sad stories along the way as well. Mm. I mean, it's getting better, isn't it, Louise? But we have a fair way to go, I think. Yeah, I think it is and it isn't. I think some of the problem is that there's more awareness, which is not a problem, of course, that's really good. There's more knowledge, which again is really good. But actually, there still seems to be this imbalance between the amount of knowledge that women have and the amount of knowledge that some, not all, healthcare professionals have. And I spoke to a lady this morning, actually, who's had symptoms for 
about seven years now and she's on pregabalin, a type of medication because she gets really bad pins and needles. And she's also on some drug, it's codeine and paracetamol and something else in it. And I said, what do you use that for? And she said, I'm really embarrassed to tell you. And I said, well, tell me. She, I said, is it for pain? And she said, no, not really. It's actually to help me sleep. Without it, I can't sleep. But she said, I know I'm a bit addicted to it now. So she's been given this medication. I said, well, what about your menopause? Do you think any of your symptoms are due to your menopause? Oh, yeah. She said, but I was just told I just need to get through it. It's one of those things. It's just part of being a woman. And I think this is where it's sad that women are not offered evidence-based treatment for many reasons and it's being medicalized in the wrong way and I know your your background is obviously very evidence-based and your sort of specialty really before you came into menopause was cardiovascular medicine wasn't it? Yeah cardiovascular disease prevention primarily Mm. so within practice I did a, a lot of work with a national education charity called Education for Health. And we went around the country training doctors and nurses to look after patients who were at high risk of cardiovascular disease and those who had cardiovascular disease. And of course, you know, I didn't realise actually until fairly recently, I have to admit, we have to remember that a lot of ladies are very frightened of breast cancer particularly Mm. in relation to hormone replacement therapy. But we have to remember, Louise, that, you know, it's not breast cancer that kills women. It's heart disease. It's cardiovascular Mm. disease. And we've got really good evidence that hormone replacement therapy reduces that risk. Mm. And so, you know, to my mind, and I'm hoping that in the not too distant future that actually hormone replacement therapy is, you know, a a big part of the cardiovascular disease prevention strategy, really. I don't see why it shouldn't be. I know it's not for primary prevention at the moment, but I can see that happening because we've got really good evidence. It's coming through thick and fast now, isn't it, that it does protect. Well, it is there. And isn't it interesting because the um, USA Preventative task force have just announced there's not enough evidence for primary prevention and as you know some of us wrote a letter to the journal and others Mm. did as well to say well there is evidence and sometimes I think about it and think because HRT is so cheap and there's not big pharma involved actually there's a lot of big pharma that want statins to be prescribed they want blood pressure lowering treatment to be prescribed and maybe antidepressants as well and painkillers and, 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 especially in America, actually, but also I think there is that in the UK as well. And just for transparency, those who are listening, none of us who work with Newson Health do any paid work with pharma. So we're not talking about this from a vested interest. But I think because pharma for HRT is not really there, there are pharmaceutical companies, but they haven't got the same presence and money behind them. I wonder whether that has a difference because there's more evidence that HRT can reduce future risk of a heart attack than there is for statins in women. Yet we've prescribed statins and a lot of people are encouraged to prescribe statins for primary prevention of heart disease for women, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you look at Framingham, the Mm. big study that's ongoing, we didn't have a lot of women in that study as well. But we know that heart attacks go up as women go through the menopause. And we know that estrogen replacement, we know that that mm. is an anti-inflammatory effect, isn't it, on mm. big vessels? And we know, yeah. So I'm just hoping at some point, alongside, of course, lifestyle management, that we start looking a little bit more seriously, really, at how mm. we can incorporate good menopause care as part of primary prevention for cardiovascular disease. Well, absolutely, because it, like you say, it's the biggest 
killer. Killer, yeah. And increasingly, we know that women who have a heart attack actually often present with different symptoms to right. men, mm. and they have a worse prognosis actually after yes. a heart attack. And it can be harder to diagnose because of their atypical symptoms. Right. So even having heart disease as a woman puts you on a wrong foot almost compared to men. But also we want to prevent disease. You know, we've come into medicine, me as a doctor, you as a nurse, yeah. obviously to treat disease, but also to prevent disease prevent as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's been amazing work with prevention of cardiovascular disease yeah. and everything else as well. You know, I often think in my mind about hypertension, raised blood pressure, because that doesn't usually cause symptoms. And I think is it a disease or not? Well, it doesn't actually matter whether it's a disease or not. The reason that we treat raised blood pressure is to reduce risk of cardiovascular disease, isn't it? And mm. absolutely, there is good evidence that lowering blood pressure can reduce incidence of heart attacks and strokes. Absolutely. And modifiable risks are the biggest absolutely. area, really. So it's a lot is lifestyle, mm. Louise, you know. Totally. You've got so, your family history and your genetics and yes. all the rest of it. But actually, the biggest risk factors are in that modifiable category. So yes, if we can sure. educate, which we do as part of our management of women going through the menopause, certainly lifestyles are really big. And that's the same with hypertension management. Mm. You know, prevention of cardiovascular disease, the majority of it is lifestyle. So exercise. And I don't like to use the word exercise, actually. I, I like to use the word activity. Yes, yes. Activity or movement. Or movement, really yeah. Important. Because we yes. know that reduces blood pressure. And we know mm. that has a really good benefit for mental health, as well as reducing cardiovascular disease risk. Absolutely. So anything for prevention prevention is really, really key. Mm. But we know actually that to try and ask many menopausal women to exercise more, to eat better, to reduce alcohol, to stop smoking yeah. can be really difficult, can't it? And often Yeah, especially when you're not feeling very well. Well and... this is the thing, isn't it? You know, I had someone, a doctor sat at my clinic a few years ago and she said, oh, Louise, you seem to be prescribing HRT in the first consultation. What I do is I encourage women to change their lifestyle first. And I won't give them HRT unless they've shown me that they're committed with losing weight, doing exercise and sleeping better and everything else. And I, I said to her, I understand you saying that, but actually... As a perimenopausal woman myself, it was impossible for me to improve my exercise, to sleep better, to eat better, because actually I had so many symptoms, I couldn't be bothered to do anything. And I didn't feel like exercising. I had so much muscle and joint pain and headaches and reduced motivation. And I was putting on weight despite eating relatively healthily. So actually, I'm setting myself up to fail. And the last thing I wanted when I saw a doctor was for them to tell me to improve my lifestyle. Totally. For some women, absolutely, it might be the right thing to consider first line. But usually we do it in conjunction, don't we? Right. And I think that's the same, you know, when I used to run diabetes clinics and, you know, the recommendations are lifestyle first, aren't they, before starting a diabetes And that's probably where your colleague was coming from. Yeah. Yeah, probably. But actually... When I was in general practice, I knew a lot of my patients really well. Yeah. And I knew that I could sit there till I was blue in the face telling them they needed to change their lifestyle. I knew they wouldn't. No, no, but no. actually, if they started a drug that then helped them to feel better and help yeah. their sugars to come down, then often the rest would fall into place. And, and so I often didn't adhere to the guidelines in such a strict way. I'd right. give them the choice and say, look, the guidelines say three months before 
but actually I know what you're like and I know you've sort of tried with lifestyle before so have a having some medication and yeah. then we can review and then sometimes and I had quite a few patients who then their lifestyle became so much better that they would lose their weight and everything else so then they would reduce some of their medication afterwards yeah which is good that's not unusual no it's not is it yeah. and I think that's the same with heart drugs as well actually if we can optimize our diet and exercise and sleep and everything else a lot of people come off antihypertensive don't they and yes yeah, definitely and i think in medicine we sometimes forget don't we everything we prescribe can be stopped as well and yeah. a lot of women we see in the clinic they come on all these medications like this lady i said today on with her progabalin and her painkillers but I know in three months' time she'll be able to come off those. Oh, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And we do that a lot. And I think it's really important, isn't it, to remember that any medicine is not, you don't sign up for life, do you, for a medication? It has to be reviewed and yes, the dose yeah. might need changing, the type might need changing. And that's the same with HRT, although most people take it for life. The dose often does need changing, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's that holistic assessment, isn't it? And that shared decision making. And I think it's tailoring things to the individual as well. What Mm. one person can do or wants to do, the next person doesn't. And I think exposure to different activities, because as I say, I don't like to use the word exercise, because the minute you say exercise, you know, people have, all they can see is a leopard clad lady on some sort of treadmill in a sweaty gym or whatever, but it doesn't have to be. It could be ballroom dancing, Latin American dancing, if you fancy dancing, that's exercise, yoga, Mm. golf, tennis, anything that gets you moving, gets, you know, walking. Mm. They've got really good evidence for walking groups now, isn't it? Where it can improve mental health, you're getting out with other other people you're having a conversation and there's some good evidence that it improves brain function as well as well as getting the weight down you know so once the weight comes down then the blood pressure starts to come down then everything starts you know it's like a domino but you've got to feel well in the first place yes haven't you Louise to, to be able to do all those things like you say I do remember that when I I did my hysterectomy back in 2020 and I remember post-operatively walking down the stairs it was about six or eight weeks later and thinking I don't have to walk down the stairs after I'd recovered of course one step at a time and the only difference was Louise I was on HRT I was on estrogen Mm. so the wound was it was you know tender where the incision was Mm. and so on but the actual joint pains and I I had never I'd been suffering with joint pains for years Mm. and brain fog and a bit of anxiety I never thought I was going through the menopause. I didn't assimilate those, you know, symptoms to, to the menopause. But I'd been suffering with perimenopause, must have been for years. And the only thing that changed after my hysterectomy was oestrogen replacement. Mm. And I was able to come down the stairs. And it was only then I twigged and I thought, oh, my goodness, I've not been able to do it for years. <laughs> Interesting, Yeah, and, and actually we're just presenting some results of a questionnaire that we did recently about surprising symptoms of the menopause and Muscle and joint pains was one of the things that affected over 15% of women, but they were surprised about it. Mm. And often people say how hard it is, especially in the morning when your levels are usually at their lowest, when people are perimenopausal, coming down the stairs, holding the banister, taking time. And sometimes people say even the soles of their feet feel very uncomfortable, you know, yeah. like walking on pebbles, very yeah. uncomfortable. And it's one of those things that you, because all we talk about is flushes and sweats, right, you know, right. for many years, that's all it's been done. But those physical symptoms, but also the psychological symptoms that are affecting people in the workplace. And 
You know, I've said it before and I'll say it again that about 40% of NHS employees are menopausal. But when we look at nurses, it's probably even more than that, isn't it, Sue? Yeah, I mean, I think we're all in very difficult jobs and, and we care for others and we're less likely to care for ourselves, aren't we? And our teams around us as well. I don't think mm. we're the best at doing that because um, we're just so busy and demanding jobs as doctors and, and nurses. But I think we do need to look after ourselves because there's not that many of us, let's face it. I mean, we're in a crisis at the minute, We've got our colleagues on mm. strike, we've no doctors, nurses coming into certainly primary care. I work in general practice and a third of our workforce is going to be retiring anytime soon and there's Mm. no one really to refill those places. So we have to look after ourselves and sometimes we have to work Mm. differently with patients and we we have to think about different ways of caring for patients and because the demand is ever increasing and and we don't always Mm. have the staff and the resources to deal with that demand. We're doing the best that we can but we do need to look after ourselves and I think, as you know, Louise, it's a huge amount of perimenopausal and menopausal age that are in more senior jobs often within the NHS. We've got to keep hold of them. We can't afford to lose any. Yeah. And it's very hard. In fact, my husband was sent something through from his NHS trust about menopause support, menopause group. And he said, oh, Louise, do you want to have a look at this? And I said, no, because I think I'll just get too upset because it's about support. It's not about treatment. It's about support. It's like we need our hands held when we're menopausal. I didn't need my hand held at all. I just needed some hormones and I didn't know how to get hold of them. And this is a problem I hear time and time again. I see so many women who are nurses And they're unable to carry on working. They're unable to get treatment that they want that's, you know, based on nice guidance. So they're reducing their hours or leaving. They're not leaving because they want to. You know, a lot of them have had some amazing careers and they're made of steel. Nurses are really hard workers. I think, you know, a lot of nurses I speak to, when they do 13-hour shifts, it's full on, you know, really hard. They're really committed to the organisation, yet... Put menopause or perimenopause into the mix, it's just too hard for them. And it makes me really sad, actually, and actually very angry (laughs) to think that we have something that's very cheap, that's cost-effective, that's evidence-based, that's mentioned in nice guidance, yet we're refusing our own profession so that we're letting them down to the extent that they have to leave in a time when every single nurse counts. Absolutely. And from personal experience, I mean, it was only, as I say, three years ago, I had my hysterectomy. I was was in a women's hospital leaving and having already talked to, you know, the surgeon prior to having known a bit more knowledge about the menopause and, and, and all the rest of it, I was going to be plunged into this surgical menopause. So I wanted to be prepared. And actually, I'd spoken about HRT and I asked, could I have it on my discharge? And when I was being discharged, Louise, there was no HRT. There was no mention of HRT. And I was told to go away, recover. And if I got symptoms in six months, to go and speak to my GP. That's what I was told. And this is a women's specialist hospital. And so, of course, I I didn't do that, Louise. I asked, (laughs) please, may I have some oestrogen? And at that point, the TTOs had been done. So, you know, I was an add-on, so they had to go back and get the final care. And I was offered an oral oestrogen. There was no choice. But of course, having that bit more knowledge, I said, no, please, may I have some gel? And it was, do you remember the scene in Oliver? 
when he asked for more mm. porridge. Yeah. That's how I felt, really. That's how I felt. And then mm. after that, it was then, you know, there's no follow-up particularly. You get your six-week remote check and, and all that. But then there was going back to the GP and saying, can I please have some more gel? You know, and it's never on a repeat. Mm. You know, and it's a continual, you know, you're having to bother people. And it needs to be, mm. it could be so much more efficient. We've got increased demand because sometimes systems aren't that good. Why couldn't mm. I have had it on repeat? So I don't have to keep ringing in and I don't have to keep bothering. No, and it could be so easy. And I know there's a lot of people out there who are very rude about the work that I do. And someone I know met somebody quite senior in the NHS recently and she said that she knew me and the person rolled their eyes and said, oh, not Dr. Louise Newson. And she said, oh, can I just ask, why are you saying that? What is it about her? Do you not agree with what she's doing or what is it? She said, no. She's just creating so much work for us because every other patient we see is a woman who's perimenopausal or menopausal and wants HRT. And then this person I know said to this other person, do you think that's Louise's fault? And then she went, no, I suppose you're right, it's not. And I, it's this perception, isn't it, that it's a short-term problem for longer-term gains. And of course it's demanding and having more women, but actually the number of women we see in the clinic who have been going back and forth for investigations for palpitations. They've gone back and forth for investigations for their urinary symptoms. They've had brain scans for their memory problems. They've been seen by psychiatrists. They've been back and forth to their GPs with all these weird and wonderful symptoms. So actually they are creating a lot of work, but they're going under the radar. And, you know, I think back as a GP, most of the people I saw were women. And most of the people I saw were in their 40s and 50s. And never, well, unless they said to me, I'm menopausal or like you, I've had a hysterectomy then when it's so obvious they're menopausal. I didn't think about it. And I, I would be one of those doctors that would send people off for tests. And, you know, we could nip it in the bud. And I think that's what we need to do, really. Like we've done with cardiovascular disease prevention. Yeah. You know, I used to see quite a few people, mainly men, who actually were having a heart attack. They'd come into the surgery and we'd have aspirin already and we'd have the GTN and we'd call the ambulance. That doesn't happen anymore because awareness is yes. huge about what is a heart attack. Yeah. If you have this chest pain, you dial 999, yeah. you know, and then you go in and you have a primary angioplasty. It's incredible what happens. You know, over the last 30 years of me being a doctor, it's been transformational for heart disease, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, It's been credible. And even for stroke as well, it's now seen as an emergency. Whereas in my day, I'll bed four in the corner, had a stroke, just put them to bed and we'll do a scan and see whether they need aspirin or not. It's so different. And absolutely isn't that right. But menopausal women is just still being, oh, no, we don't want to manage them. Yeah, I think there's possibly a lack of confidence. And I know that the knowledge Mm. base hasn't been that great. I know as a nurse going through all my career, and I've been in nursing for 30 years, I mean, we were never offered menopause training, certainly not in my training. And not as a nurse practitioner. I can't remember being offered menopause training. It was only when, you know, I remember seeing ladies and thinking, oh gosh, something's, and, and signposting these ladies to GPs for more help. And certainly, like at SMEAS are a great opportunity for nurses to identify and it's asking the right questions at the right time, isn't it? Mm. And getting patients who, for example, are having some GSM symptoms to get them on vaginal oestrogen because yes. precious few ladies can't have 
put it on there. And it, and it makes the, smear, the cervical cytology so much more comfortable. Mm. But it's identifying them. And there's certain practices, and certainly we've done this. And it was only through your 14 fish training. It's fabulous. You know, it's free training for everybody to access. I mean, I did the British Menopause Society course, which was great. Mm. And your training as well with the case studies. And like you say, the case studies, is, mm. for me, I think, and for a lot of nurses, we like case studies because that's, that's how you learn do. real life. It brings life it to life. Though, it brings it to life, it? yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so as I remember coming out of that and thinking, we've got to identify these patients better. And so what we've done is in reception, because I work in a general practice, we've put a little poster up for the reception team. We did a little educational thing and just said, if you get ladies between the ages, say, of 45 and 55 Mm. with these symptoms, hot flushes, a low mood, palpitations, I put about six or seven symptoms. We know there's a lot more Mm. than that, but the key ones, then please signpost them through to the doctors and nurses who have more of a Mm. specialist interest in the menopause. So we're hopefully going to identify them a bit better doing that as well. And that's easily done, isn't it? Yeah, but so important, the number of people who avoid going for smears because they're uncomfortable or painful. Or a lot of people have said to me, my last one was so unpleasant, I'm never going again. I said, did anyone talk to you about vaginal hormones? Not at all. And vaginal hormones, as you know, are very different to systemic hormones. And about a fifth of people who take HRT still need to use vaginal hormones as well. Mm. And a lot don't realise that. They don't appreciate that. No, I was at an event talking recently and a woman in the audience said, I'm not allowed to have vaginal hormones because I'm on HRT, but I'm really having a lot of discomfort. And, you know, the dose is very low. They're very safe. And even for women who've had breast cancer, they can usually very safely use vaginal estrogen. So... There's a huge amount that we need to do. And I know you're doing a large amount educating fellow nurses as well, which is wonderful. And I think nurses are understanding, you know, whenever I lecture and teach nurses, it's overwhelming the response I get. And they have a bit of a personal interest because if they're menopausal as well. But nurses are great at giving information in very easy to understand chunks of information. They sometimes have longer consultations and doctors as well, actually. And I certainly feel going forwards in menopause care, more nurses and pharmacists should be involved, actually, because they really do it very well. I'm not saying that doctors no, don't. No. I can't say that because I'm a doctor, can I? No, but I, I think you're <laughs> but, right, Louise. Patients do often open up to nurses more. And, they do. And, you know, they absolutely do. They'll tell you more than they often tell us. And I think that's really, really important. But I think, you know, joined up way, using all clinicians, yes, working yeah, together absolutely. for the common goal of improving health and reducing diseases has got to be the way forward so so the work you're doing is amazing I'm very grateful for you coming and talking about it today Sue and opening up a bit about your personal experience before we end I've got to ask you three take-home tips of course but I would like to ask you three things that you think nurses could do now to make a difference so I know there's quite a few healthcare professionals that listen to the podcast so if there are nurses or any healthcare professionals listening and they feel that they need a bit more education about the menopause or they're not really sure what are three things that you would recommend for them? Well, I would definitely recommend getting some more education. And of course, now we've got access to 14 Fish, which is free and it's fabulous menopause training. So I definitely do that. I would also say to nurses to talk more 
mm. to each other and to line managers and to say if you are struggling a little bit on the wards or in practice then you know you need to let people know and you know, I, I'm sure in larger organisations there are protocols and policies for menopause. Unfortunately, I don't think it's that common in general practice to have those policies. But I think by uh, talking and, and asking for support and don't be frightened of doing that. As I say, we do need to look after each other so that we can provide the best care for our patients as well. And the third thing, I, I, I want to say, let's make it positive. Let's let's mm. make the menopause positive mm. because I hear so many times it's negative terms that we use. I I mean, recently we've set up a local support group because there really isn't anything in my kind of area, Warwickshire, NHS-wise. So I've set up a little support group and we did a focus group and asked the ladies what one word that summed up to them their menopause. There were 22 ladies there and we had something like 136 years of menopause between us. So some were six months in, some were at the mm. other side. There wasn't one positive word there were isolation loneliness struggle everything was negative and it shouldn't be no. like that we have to make it more positive don't mm. we and I think if we stand together we support each other we talk more we can make it more positive get on the right treatment speak to people who know what they're doing and they're specializing in the menopause and if you don't see somebody in the practice that perhaps as a GP practice is normally the first port to call then go and see somebody else and if not if you need to go privately then do go privately because there's fabulous clinics like Newson Health that are scattered throughout the country but we, we shouldn't be battling for good standardized basic menopause care it should be free at point of access at least shouldn't it absolutely totally agree so <laughs> great tips and hopefully that's been useful for many people to listen to and feel more empowered with more knowledge so then everybody can hopefully receive the right care attention treatment that they deserve so thanks again for your time today Sue. it's been really good oh thanks louise thank you for more information about the perimenopause and menopause please visit my website balance-menopause.com or you can download the free balance app which is available to download from the app store or from google play Music